Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Seven Little Words, The Only Prayer You'll Ever Need, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 28th, 2007. About a month ago, while I was exercising at the YMCA, I met a church friend I hadn't seen in several years. It was the first time I had spoken to Phil since he had left his disabled wife of some 30 years. After some superficial chit-chat, and figuring that many people probably thought he was a slimeball for doing such a thing, I asked Phil if he felt socially isolated. Only by Christians, he said. I admit that I was as tempted as anyone to shoot the wounded. Lucky for me, though, I had been thinking about Luke's gospel for this week in chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. By contrasting the two characters in this parable as polar opposites, Jesus sets in bold relief two ways of being religious, one of which is death-dealing the other of which is life-giving. The Pharisee was religiously righteous. The taxman was an extortionist for the Roman oppressors. The religious expert was smug, sanctimonious, and confident. The outsider was anxious, insecure, and timid. The saint paraded to the temple, while the sinner stood at a distance, as if his physical separation from the sacred temple expressed his spiritual alienation. The righteous man stood up. The sinful man looked down. In an act of incredible narcissism, the Pharisee prayed loudly, we read, about himself. The tax collector could barely pray at all. 
The Pharisee puffed out his chest in pride. The publican beat his breast in sorrow. As in so many Jesus stories that subvert conventional wisdom, the parable punchline culminates with a reversal. The respectable, reputable religious believer, so competent and accomplished, the one who had done everything right, was rejected. On the other hand, the secular sinner, disreputable, inadequate, and incompetent, went home justified before God. It would be hard to conjure a more earnest, conscientious, religious person than the Pharisee. He prayed often, he fasted regularly, and he gave generously to help the needy. His spiritual regimen was stringent, but he made two tragic mistakes in his religious life, one about himself and one about other people the combination of which was toxic to authentic spirituality. First, we read that the Pharisee looked down on everybody else. Contempt for and disparagement of other people lurk in the human heart. At least they do in mine, bubbling up all too easily and frequently. For example, I'm glad I don't have tattoos like that guy over there. Thank God I'm not as narrow-minded as those conservative Republicans. We imagine that in dissing others, we validate ourselves, or that at least we'll compare favorably. To disparage someone like my friend Phil, who left his disabled wife, to disparage him as a sanctimonious hypocrite might feel good, but that's a dark place that Jesus warns us to avoid. We harm people when we do this to them, and even worse, while imagining that we elevate ourselves, we harm our own selves. We all stumble in many ways, says James chapter 3, verse 2. And, we might add, for many reasons. What we need when we flounder and fail is not moral condescension, but human compassion. Not humiliation, but empathy. Not shame and blame, but hope. I've always loved the tender wisdom of St. Maximus the Confessor, who lived in the 7th century. He writes... The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of those who are trying to make progress. The flip side of condescension toward others is justification of yourself. This was the Pharisee's second mistake. The Pharisee, we read, thanked God that he was not like other people, a thief, an evildoer, or an adulterer. 
His religious narcissism was a form of spiritual self-justification, of which there are almost endless permutations. It's scary to think about the many ways we try to justify ourselves before God, before others, and certainly before our own selves. We'll invoke almost anything to justify ourselves. Intelligence with our GPAs and SAT scores, your alma mater where you graduated from school, money, family, sports, I'm in shape, you're a slob, politics when we claim that our vote is enlightened but the other vote is ideological, and even our work. A common form of self-justification invokes your zip code, a thinly veiled insinuation that net worth is a reliable indicator of self-worth. Ethical self-justification assures me that, quote, I'm better than the next person. At one time or another, and to a greater or lesser degree, I've tried these versions of self-justification. They don't work. Society is relentless in demanding proofs and justifications from us, and it's easy to take the bait, especially if you're an accomplished person with lots of ammunition who, in all modesty, of course, can rise to the, rise to the occasion and the challenge. To live without self-justification makes me feel vulnerable and naked. But when you think about it, living without self-justifications is extraordinarily liberating. As soon as you accept that you're accepted by a good God, you never, for any reason, need to prove yourself. To get to that place, Jesus says that we need only seven words. Those words mumbled by the tax collector as he stood at a distance and stared at the ground. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The moment we breathe those words and cast our unadorned selves upon God, we enjoy his love without conditions or limits. Correctly understood and spoken from the heart, that's the most important prayer anyone can utter, and in a sense, the only prayer you'll ever need. That's because it proceeds from a clear-eyed appraisal of our human condition, and, more importantly, from confidence in the character of a God who welcomes the secular sinner and who even welcomes the self-righteous saint. And now for further reflection. The early monastics on judging others. Consider what the monk Moses said, that we must never judge our neighbor at all, in any way, whatever. Or again, they said of Abba Macarius that just as God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would cover the faults he saw, as though he did not see them, and those he heard, as though he did not hear them. Or on self-justification, consider John the Dwarf, who once said, 
We have put aside the easy burden, which is self-accusation, and weighed ourselves down with the heavy burden, self-justification. Thirdly, consider Mrs. Turpin from the short story Revelation written by Flannery O'Connor. Mrs. Turpin was a good, decent, upright, and proud woman who did everything right, except that she was a self-righteous racist. In fact, she was a person, wrote O'Connor, who when she entered heaven needed even her virtues to be burned away. And finally, consider this, that the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 was wrong about himself, he was wrong about his neighbor, and he was also wrong about God. For books this week, we reach back almost 30 years to a book by Dieter Dengler called Escape from Laos, San Rafael Presidio Press, uh, 1979, 211 pages. On February the 1st, 1966, the American pilot Dieter Dengler took enemy fire and crash-landed his plane in Laos while on a secret mission. After surviving in the jungle on his own, he was captured, tortured, then taken on a three-week jungle trek to a Patet Lao prison camp called Par Kung. Dieter Dengler recalls that it was nothing like he imagined a prison camp might be. Instead, it was a tiny enclave of a few huts, exactly 21 by 22 steps in size. There he met six other POWs, two American and four Asian, who had been imprisoned as long as two and a half years. Later they were transferred to the very similar Hoi Het camp. When starvation threatened both the prisoners and the guards, and when the prisoners overheard the guards saying that they planned to shoot them, they made an elaborate plan and in fact they escaped. The fellow POWs were separated after the escape, and Dengler and his buddy Dwayne Martin teamed up. Lice, leeches, ticks, ants, sweltering days and cold nights, torrential rain, dumb mistakes, and incredibly good luck, not to mention the human will to survive. All these are only part of Dieter Dengler's first-person narrative. Incredibly, after soldiering on for so long, Dengler and Martin stumbled onto some villagers, scared them, and in the space of about a minute, they beheaded Duane. After surviving 23 days in the jungle, after his escape, hallucinations, wandering in a circle, tumbling over waterfalls, and eating things you should never eat, Dieter Dengler was rescued in an improbable stroke of good luck. By then he had lost 60 pounds in the six-month ordeal. 
1997, the filmmaker Werner Herzog made a documentary about Dengler called Little Dieter Needs to Fly. And more recently, he dramatized this survival's tale in the fantastic film from the year 2007 called Rescue Dawn. Dieter Dengler's book, Escape from Laos, is a gripping tale that reminded me of Alfred Lansing's endurance about Shackleton's Antarctic survival story. And so it's 30 years old, but I highly recommend it. It would make for fantastic family reading. Dieter Dengler, Escape from Laos. For film this week, I review a remarkable film that adds to the literature and film on the Holocaust. The name of the film is called Forgiving Dr. Mengele, 2007. Could you forgive Dr. Mengele, the Nazi angel of death? That's not a theoretical question for Eva Kor. She and her twin sister Miriam spent 10 months in Auschwitz and, along with many other biological twins, were separated from their families and subjected to Mengele's horrific experiments. After liberation by the Soviets as a 10-year-old girl, she spent 10 years in Israel, then relocated, improbably, to Terre Haute, Indiana in 1960 where she raised her family. She returned to Auschwitz for the first time in 1984, and then again for the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camps in 1995. On that latter occasion, she did the unthinkable. Eva Kor read out loud her personal official declaration of amnesty to Mengele and the Nazis. To be liberated from the Nazis was not enough, she said. She needed to be released from the pain of the past. To extend forgiveness, says Kor, without any prerequisites required of the perpetrators, was what she calls an act of self-healing. Others in the Jewish community were outraged that she dared to do this. Most interesting of all, Kor was clearly uncomfortable with extending forgiveness to or empathizing with the Palestinians when in this film she traveled there. Still, forgiving Dr. Mengele is a remarkable exploration of what Eva Kor calls, quote, the feeling of complete freedom from pain through the act of forgiving your worst enemy. Forgiving Dr. Mengele from the year 2007. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Elizabeth Barrett Browning lived from 1806 to 1861. She was the oldest of 12 children and the first person in her family for 200 years to be born in England. Her family had lived in Jamaica, where they owned sugar plantations. An enthusiastic Christian believer, as a teenager, Elizabeth Barrett Browning taught herself to
to read Hebrew in the Old Testament in its original language, and later she studied Greek. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, A Child's Thought of God. They say that God lives very high, but if you look above the pines, you cannot see our God, and why? And if you dig down in the mines, you never see him in the gold, though from him all that's glory shine. God is so good, he wears a fold of heaven and earth across his face, like secrets kept for love, untold. But still I feel that his embrace slides down by thrills through all things made, through sight and sound of every place. As if my tender mother laid on my shut lids her kisses pressure, half waking me at night and said, who kissed you through the night, dear guesser? Elizabeth Barrett Browning, A Child's Thoughts of God. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October the 28th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.